happy winter solstice, my dear listeners. If you hear the sound of raindrops right now, that's because it is a very rainy, wintry day in Seattle, but hopefully the sound isn't too annoying. Last year, our Christmas special was all about the pagan origins of Christmas, which culminated in Oliver Cromwell canceling the holiday before Charles Dickens helped bring it back with his now classic tale, A Christmas Carol. Since we started this year off with a series on Queen Victoria and her reign, I figured we could go full circle and talk about the Victorian traditions that have shaped how Christmas is celebrated today. To kind of set the scene for you, Christmas was pretty much just another day, most didn't have the day off, and any celebrations were decidedly low-key. Victoria became queen in 1837 and married Albert in 1840. That was when the festivities really began. Let's start off with one piece of Christmas iconography we can all get behind, the Christmas tree. Christmas trees had been a thing in Germany since at least the Middle Ages, but hadn't really caught on in England. Queen Victoria's mother, a German princess, observed this tradition in her new home. But it wasn't until Victoria married Prince Albert that the Christmas tree really caught on. This was thanks in part to a drawing of Victoria, Albert, and their children admiring their ornamented and illuminated tree in 1848. The drawing ran in a London newspaper, and soon all the middle-class families wanted a tree. Family was a cultural touchstone in the Victorian era, and Victoria and Albert were often looked to as the model and inspiration. It was kind of the same situation when they got married. Most women in Western nations wanted to wear a white dress after seeing Victoria's. Now, if you laughed at this year's Rockefeller Center Christmas tree looking pretty bare, that's what most of the trees during Victorian times looked like. The reason? They purposely shaped the trees in cut and trimmed branches because instead of electric twinkling lights like we have now, they used actual candles to light their tree. And in order to keep these candles from burning down the entire house, they had to keep the branches separated. Between real candles on their Christmas trees and arsenic wallpaper, it's seriously a wonder anyone made it out of that century alive. On that same note, keepsake ornaments became a thing around this time thanks to the Industrial Revolution, which saw things getting mass-produced cheaply. Giving presents had traditionally been something done on New Year's. Gifts were generally very simple, like fruit, nuts, or sweets. Or if it was an object, the gift was generally homemade. But homemade in this instance meant expensive, something bought from an artisan craftsman. So prior to this period, not many could afford these types of gifts. Again, though, the Industrial Revolution made sweeping changes to the means of production and cost. With more families rising to the middle class and mass-produced presents made cheaply, holiday shopping started to pick up. Another interesting thing about gift-giving was that with the smaller objects, people would just put the gifts on the tree. When larger presents became more widespread, presents were moved under the tree as we have now. Let's move on to my favorite one. Christmas cards. I don't know about you, but I love receiving Christmas cards from every person I've ever encountered, and it's fun to see who's added you to their list every year. I actually send out New Year's cards because I forget until the last minute every single year. Sorry, digression there. Two things happened that led to the rise of Christmas cards. First off, in 1840, the penny post was introduced. This was a cheap stamp that only cost a penny, and you could send either a card or a letter to any place in Britain. By 1870, it was further reduced to half a penny. In 1843, so three years after this penny stamp was first introduced, Henry Cole, Prince Albert's buddy and the future director of the Victoria and Albert Museum, created the first mass-produced Christmas card. He hired an illustrator to draw his family enjoying a festive dinner, and on the sides of this image are pictures of the family helping the poor with food and clothing. The card says in bold letters, 
Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. Cole had 1,000 of these cards printed, and the ones left over after sending to friends and family were sold to the public for a shilling apiece. That was a bit of money, so again, only middle and upper class families could afford it, but after that, Christmas cards took off. Now, Victorians were a lot freakier than we tend to give them credit for. A lot of Christmas cards were bizarre and macabre. There's a Victorian Christmas card with a frog murdering another frog with a knife while stealing the dead frog's money, and underneath it, it says, Merry Christmas to you. There's one that says, A Happy Christmas, where a man is getting eaten by a bear. As much as we rip on Hallmark these days, they at least saved us from deeply disturbing Christmas cards. And just a little Hallmark digression, in the 1940s, they hired Salvador Dali to make some Christmas cards for them. That little tidbit really blew my mind and made me wonder what happened to them. But getting back to Victorians and their freakiness, let's move on to mistletoe. While the idea of kissing under mistletoe goes all the way back to Norse mythology, the Victorians loved the tradition of what they called kissing balls. Being virtuous and buttoned up was a strict Victorian value, but all that prudishness meant pent-up sexual desire. So how do you get around strict social norms? You make it socially acceptable to steal a kiss under a ball of mistletoe and evergreen branches. You may have needed a chaperone 24-7, but all bets were off if you played your cards right and waited for a hottie to step under a kissing ball. Last, let's do a little refresher on A Christmas Carol. This story, perhaps more than any other, helped shape the traditions and themes of modern Christmas celebrations. A Christmas Carol was written in six weeks during a time in his life when Dickens was a bit down on his luck. Because of the failure of his previous book, Chuzzlewit, his publishers had Dickens pay for the publishing of A Christmas Carol up front. Dickens was proud of the work and insisted the book have a fancy leather binding with gilded pages. When the design was not to his satisfaction, they redesigned the book and it was ready just two days before its published date of December 19th, 1843. Each copy was five shillings, which was a heavily discounted price in relation to the production costs, but Dickens wanted everyone even those not as well off to be able to enjoy it. The first run of 6,000 copies sold out by Christmas Eve. But because of the publishing hit, he only made 230 pounds when he had expected at least 1,000 pounds. It was an instant classic with almost universal praise, but he was disappointed it didn't make the money he had expected. But it did reaffirm his place as the Victorian era's most accomplished writer. The story reinforced the ideas of charity, love, and spending time with friends and family as solidly Christmas traditions. By the end of the Victorian era, people got their days off for the holiday, and those in the servant classes got Boxing Day off. Thanks to the expansion of railroads during the 1800s, people were able to travel more freely and get back home to see their families. So there you have it. Christmas is the behemoth it is today thanks to Queen Victoria, Prince Albert, and Charles Dickens. A motley crew to be sure. If you're like... You know what? I need some more holiday listening. Head over to the show notes and I have links to my series on Charles Dickens from last year. I also have a link to my holiday reading list and some fun pictures of Queen Victoria's Christmas tree, as well as some of the quirky holiday cards I mentioned. This is our final episode of 2020. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. This year was a doozy to say the least, and I hope that you and your loved ones are staying safe and healthy. I am pleased to announce that I no longer have cancer, but I still have about two months of treatments left, which means that historical schedule will be wonky for a little while longer. If you have requests for historical subjects in 2021, please email me at hi at immortalperfumes.com and I will add them to the queue. 
To that end, please join me in January of 2021 to learn the tale of the two-time Nobel Prize winning woman who discovered radium. (laughs) 